0: hey everybody we are live here on the sensibly speaking podcast i have dylan gill a former scientologist and sea org member from the uh worked up at the highest i mean highest levels of scientology for a while uh dylan about a year or so ago was on Aaron Smith-Levin's Growing Up in Scientology channel, and they did a very extensive long-form interview where they talked about his history with the church, what the Church of Spiritual Technology is, and how it relates to RTC, which is, you know, David Miscavige's senior organization that runs and dictates all of Scientology. But the Church of Spiritual Technology is something most people don't ever hear too much about, even Scientologists. Um, so, I have a ton of questions because when I was in, I never really knew that much about CST. I knew about this thing called the Archive Project uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. In fact, why don't we just go ahead and lead into that. Dylan, uh, welcome to my show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here, Chris.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. And I'm, I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Um. You have a, uh, you know, kind of a standard story, which is not to uh, say that it's in any way less than less than horrible. It's awful. <laughs> uh, Scientology is awful with everyone, <laughs> and you definitely received uh, the brunt of that with, with your experience. Do you want to just kind of give an overview rather than, you know, get into all the little details of... Of what your experiential history was with Scientology real fast?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so growing, I grew up um, with Scientology in my life. Uh, my grandparents had tried it out in South Lake Tahoe at the mission there. Um, my uncles, aunts, cousins have all dabbled in it. Um, but my father and my uncle and his wife really got involved. My, my aunt, as ot3 and course soups and um, worked in missions extensively and they moved to florida to to kind of be close to it so it's always kind of been in my life my uncle's still in my father's still in my aunt's still in um, my cousins are. i have cousins in the sea org i have so i have a lot of current not and i have no affiliation with them but they're currently in um so growing up it, it was always kind of a part of my life um even though my dad was kind of a reverted hippie sort of thing. Um, and I found myself getting recruited at like 12 and 13. And, um, luckily my dad had some sense at that time to kind of deflect it a bit. But once I turned like 14 and 15, my dad was pretty much like, okay, it's time for you to go. (laughs) And, um, it's funny because i think in aaron's video i didn't really i kind of brushed over a lot of that but i actually ended up going to the sea org from an ethic cycle of not i was on my upper end docks at a, at a mission the upper end doctor uh trs so the you know ashtray trs that most people would know right um, yeah i
0: went at the ashtray yeah. right
1: stand up <laughs> sit down tone 40. um Which I still have. No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) Um, I like to think of myself as tone 80 now.
1: (laughs) Right, super intense. Um, But I was kind of skipping the classes every every once in a while. My dad would drop me off and go off and do his thing. And sometimes I'd go to the mission and sometimes I'd go to my friend's house, which was close. I got caught and I ended up just so happened a flag recruiting tour was in town. And I'd already done a project prepare before. So this was like my dad's final straw and for him to get rid of me. And my father had tried to join the Sea Org a couple of times, but the LSD thing, he didn't really get it timing wise. So him and my uncle were both out So I became kind of the guy. Um, okay
0: out uh, meaning not qualified for the Sea Org because you can't join the Sea Org if you've taken LSD. That is it's one yes. of the only rules that <laughs> exists to keep people out of the Sea Org. They'll take just about anybody, but they <laughs> exactly. won't take LSD cases.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, when I did get to Florida and started my EPF, there was a few guys that had been on the ship before we anybody knew about the ship. Um, and they were like people that- The free that- winds, you mean? Yes. And they were before the free ones was even the free ones. It was like when they were looking to purchase it, there were people that were like had been on the ship prior to them buying it. And they had recruited a few of them into Florida that they said they could just go back and work on the ship again, but they had to get through this EPF. Right. And they, those people got routed out left. I mean, they were crazy. I, my first night at, at at the EPF, I was 15 years old, and there was this like 65 year old Popeye the Sailor Man, like living in the. I was petrified, you know, um, and he ended up getting completely fitness boarded out, and uh, and then wow. I was. this to- was what was you know, this? Probably.
0: 85, 86?
1: Yeah, 85. Yeah.
0: 85 okay because yeah. they because the free winds was uh was the this motor vessel this this you know basically this very large yacht they right. tried to you know re repack re, rebranded as a very 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 large yacht rather than a really tiny cruise ship right. and uh but they had purchased this thing or they had been running around purchasing ships in the mid 80s or looking to purchase this ship in the mid 80s and then they finally hit on this free winds ship or they they got this boat and renamed it the free winds and and so yeah they were trying to get people who knew how to do something when on boats and i find that hilarious given that it's the sea organization
1: it's weird that they took a lot of the old crew and tried to get them through the scientology courses so they could go back on and work on the ship because they didn't exactly. know how the exactly exactly
0: awesome. because they, they it, I, you know it, again millions of members yeah right they can't find anybody in scientology or the sea org who's got you know ocean going experience so they had to you know get outside professionals
1: well i think that'll tie in quite a bit actually um and not that i'm forgetting to answer your question about how i got in but no um, no keep going the ship project was real parallel to the archive cst conundrum of that it was super duper confidential nobody knew about it it was all like we're you were buying the ship. I learned about it on the EPF and didn't even know I wasn't supposed to know about it because I happened to be in the same room as a guy that was on the ship that they just bought. And, um, so it kind of, none of the staff, none of the higher ups, not even CMO at that point, which was the Commodore's messenger org really knew about that project being purchased. And it was right in their backyard. And this was in Clearwater where you were joining. Yeah, this was, this was in Clearwater. I, I was, on the West Coast in Northern California, and I was sent to Clearwater to go to join the Sea Org. Okay. Which turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because PAC and FLAG are just, I mean, FLAG was terrible and disgusting, but PAC was worse than FLAG. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, it was, when I went (laughs) there to go to CMYXU, I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) And I had the same idea that like, PAC must be gorgeous and beautiful and FLAG sucks, and we're trying to make, and then, oh, my God, it wasn't even close to that.
0: No, especially in the mid-'80s. Pac was just a hellhole. Oh, it was
1: disgusting, yeah. Oh, my first – yeah, it was terrible.
0: I, I first encountered Pac uh, – well, I think I first, first, first encountered Pac when I was about seven years old. My dad took me around. But, uh, but as far as actual going down there, it was 1987 that I first went down there as a Santa Barbara. Oh,
1: okay, right, right.
0: But you were down there earlier. So what else happened?
1: um in florida well i so long story short because it was on chris or on uh, aaron's thing i long signed my cr contract again i think i'd signed it twice prior when i was 12 and for 13 and and finally i signed it again did a couple repair past ethics conditions and my dad was at the he was a very and still is a very hardcore scientologist he wanted me to route directly onto the RPF at Flag and at the, the time RPF I, yeah the RPF <laughs> <Your> <laughs> because dad I wanted you to go to the RPF yeah rusty gill teacher at delphi where anybody that went to delphi knows my dad. And it's like, my God, he's such a great human being and awesome. And he was a pretty, he's a hardcore Scientologist. We had stat graphs. I used to get flunked for doing the dishes wrong and, you know, have to redo them all. And so honestly, when I went to the UPF, it was, I went there thinking I was like ethics bait. And when I got there, I was like, Oh my God, pure as the driven snow. Like I got traded to CMO. I went right into the CMO EPF. I was recruited for Flag Crew, um, which is the estates division or the states org for the flag land base. And uh, I didn't, halfway through my EPF, I was informed that I'm now CMO. Wow. Thing everything kind of changed. So I went directly from EPF to CMO EPF to in the CMO missionary unit and did a ton of missions, and then I went right into HCO as the COPE officer.
0: All right, so we're throwing a lot of terminology around, and anybody who's struggling to keep up, all he's really saying is he went through the, he rose up through the ranks pretty quickly, uh, through various specialist parts of the organization of Scientology and the C organization, to go into CMO, the Commodore's Messenger Org, all by itself is a very elite status. Very few Sea Org members are even qualified to go into CMO. It's a constant struggle finding people. Who are qualified? Uh, there are rigorous qualifications. It's not just not taking LSD, it's a certain IQ, certain test scores, certain background in history, no weird sexual stuff. I mean, they love virgins <laughs> into the CMO. That's why young <laughs> girls and young men are the ones who get put in there.
1: Yeah, because uh, was... you can't
0: have any weird history uh, sexually. Exactly. and a bunch of other stuff which we don't need to get into the point is that it's a it's the it's sort of the cream of the crop of the sea org is the, is cmo and from cmo is where they find people mostly for rtc and the church of spiritual technology and those other things we're going to talk about so it's so he dylan thinking he's scum because his dad raised him like a jerk comes into Scientology and the Sea Org and everybody is just like, I can't get enough of this guy. He's wonderful. Let's move him on up the line. And he quickly rises up in the ranks. And that's basically what we were talking about
1: here. Right. And I was posted in the personnel department, which is the Hubbard communications office, which has its own set of special quals besides the org. So I became, and I did most of the, like you mentioned about how most of those people go up to INT. I did all the missions for, the whole time I was at the Flag Land Base to get people up to int. Right. I did all the int quals missions and and man and ran and man those. And um, I worked directly with the Action Bureau, which is the the department in a CMO unit, it's much different than like a service org where they deliver auditing and and qual, they have um, operations and action. So they do invals and invests to all the orgs, and then they fix them with the action bureau. So
0: right, right. Basically, I, I, the idea is that um, you have a whole organization whose whole job is to inspect and manage and enforce compliance to orders from very senior management levels. And that's the, that's the CMO's function, and that's what you were doing.
1: They're, they're actually called the observation and execution arm right. for CMO Exactly. Which is so, a, I, the same as WDC, Watchdog Committee.
0: Exactly. So yeah. And and I will link, I, I'm kind of bad at this, but I'll put a link down below to the organizational video I put together. So if you're really lost and confused right now, you can watch that video and get the layout of Scientology's hierarchy. It's, it's you know, it's it's a lot of minutiae. It's a lot of nonsense to have to learn about this stuff. But if you're really going to understand somebody's story from an ex from a org position, you kind of have to understand the structure of Scientology. Otherwise, a lot of these words and stuff we throw around, you can get through it without having to understand all this stuff, but it puts a lot of things in context. That's why we, uh, that's why you're talking about this stuff. I think, doing.
1: you know, that's a really good point because one of the things that even from the onset of joining the Sea Org is there's these organization boards and all these divisions and to man them up fully, is hundreds of staff members. Yep. And there's only probably when I was there, two, maybe three organizations that actually had that number of staff members to almost man their whole org. The CMO, we had like 22 people and we were the biggest CMO unit <laughs> by like five to 10 people. Right. Right. So PAC had like, you know, the Pacific area in the Los Angeles only had like 14 or 13. Europe had like four or five people. Gold had like six, you know, And but we're still saying, oh, the fastest growing. At that point, Dianetics had been on the bestseller list for like 256 weeks or so. You know, it was ridiculous. And you're just like, no, this doesn't just, you never think it doesn't jive. That's what's, you know, when you leave. You're like, wait a minute, there was nobody anywhere. Exactly. We were doing the job of two or three hundred people with 20 of us. And That's right. And-
0: That's right. Again, I, as, as I've said before, actually, I think we even mentioned this in my interview with Bree last week. It's, you know, there's too few people spread way too thin trying to do way too much. Right. You know, well, that and they makes don't- it.
1: That's what makes it so hard every week. Like everybody's like, well, what do they do every week? You know they're thir- it's, they do every job that they don't have personnel for is what they're doing because they got to report all those stats and there's nobody to so it, it creates its own problems, you know That's right. but, And it is weird with all the people that say, "Well, how could you fall for that?" You know, like for somebody like me, I grew up in it and you, you, you didn't, you know, but even those, the people that got into it with the help button being pushed, you know, it's when you get into it, it's such a whirlwind and it's such a thing. I learned at 10 years old how to sell Dianetics books and I wow. learned, and we used to go out door to door, they would drop you off at like an apartment complex and you would have a couple of Dynex books in your hands and they'd let, make you go door to door, knocking on doors, trying to sell books. For me, it was because I had to get my next course paid for at the mission. So, cause I, my dad wouldn't pay for my classes cause that would be out exchange. And so I had to pay for So I'm learning all these sales techniques of like, get them to agree, get him to say yes, get him, And you know, you start pushing people's help buttons. And there's your answer. That's why people can fall. That's why these smart people, intellectual people that went to college can fall for it because they push the humanity button. And we all have that. We all have, I mean, hey, can you help me? Of course I want to help you. Like if it's like, hey, jerk, buy this book. It's like, well, screw you, you know? But it's like, hey, don't you want to make the world a better? Don't you hate seeing everybody fighting all the, well, of course I do. Well, you know what? This book's going to help you and it's like, ding. So I think that's one of those questions that growing up, that's, you know, I always, I grew up with the dynamics of like these eight urges towards survival, you know, that we're going to help. And if you have them all, then you make the world a better place, you know? And um, so you're always kind of, that's always in the back of your mind when you're doing all this stuff and you're, you're doing all these jobs and there's not the personnel or people get randomly RPF for no reason. And you're like, but I like that guy. And he was just as I'm worse than him, maybe, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's, I think that's part of the reason why you're able to kind of, I don't even think it's close your eyes to it, but never really accept the fact that something bad could be happening because you've already agreed so much that you're doing so much good. So it's hard to now disagree with yourself that now you're doing bad.
0: Exactly. Like, I, I, I don't know that's... if 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 people appreciate how many of us also came up through, you know, second gen, third gen. You know, right. a lot of Scientologists these days are second, third, fourth generation Scientologists. Exactly. You know, yeah. Oh my gosh. or they're the old people, you know, who have been around since the '60s or '70s. Right. Um, well, I think most of those guys are probably gone at this point, actually
1: yeah, for the most part, there's a few that I would like to i I wish I knew where they were because yep. <laughs> there you know there's a bunch of people that I worked with that were really it, it was the same thing in the sixties man, people are trying to help each other you're you right. know the, our world was almost in its infancy socially and and they really had that. They wanted to make the world, they didn't want Russia to drop the bomb. They didn't want, Amer- you know, they really wanted it to be a better world. And once you're in that bubble, you don't have a chance to think your way out of it. You know, no. I, I almost think it's better to be a second gen um, because y- your innate abilities kind of come out. When you start seeing things wrong, like I've always attributed being a really good messenger and really understanding the policies of Scientology to getting out because once those started being violated, I went, wait a second, this isn't the group I was going to be a part of, you know, and I had screwed up ideas then of like, well, if LRH came back, you'd be in trouble and da da. da. And, but it was the way I woke up because I believed in the policy and when they started contradicting it and that management started contradicting it, those were big red flags for me. Yeah. So That's, you know, it's almost like Scientology is what got me out of Scientology. (laughs) So it's kind of a weird.
0: It's a a good point. Actually, you make a very good point because it was, I don't know that. You know, through the 1950s, there wasn't a whole lot of policy in the first place. The organizations were just starting and and that was really, you know, origin story time. 60s was a lot of consolidation and uh, dissemination internationally. They set up an international network. In the 70s, it was a big growth period and they were still following and writing tons and tons of policy and figuring out the organizational structure and all that. But come the 1980s, you still have new policies and new methods coming out. But Miscavige then starts, you know, cross what you call cross ordering or, or you know, saying, well, this policy says this, but we have this emergency and we don't have time for that. So we have to do this now. And now, 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 now. And things became even more frantic, more crazy. Right. And of course, Scientology made it that way because of what the GO was doing. I mean, they got the FBI raid and bust, and then they busted all the mission holders, and they were just making all their own trouble and making their own emergencies. And Miscavige took advantage of all of that to subvert a bunch of policy and rewrite stuff in his own name. And that's, I don't know, that's kind of how I look at it. I don't know, what do
2: you think?
1: No, I agree. Um, You know, Flag, when we were there, it was always, especially in the messenger org, because there's messenger orders, Yep. And then at flag, there's OODs, which are orders of the day. And then there's FOs, there's flag orders. Yep. And then there's green on white and red on white. Right. So green on white being admin policy, red on white being tech policy. Right. So there was always a constant struggle of what did you apply and when did you apply it. And, you know, the general rule was green on white trumped almost anything else, but there was flag orders written by L. Ron Hubbard that were commonly used at the base. And and they were, those were operated off of because they were his policy, basically. So it was kind of convoluted. You could kind of pick and choose your orders. Um, I think one of the main things that happened um, when I was there was I was around during the whole takeover it, middle to end of it but mm-hmm. I wasn't privy to it because I wasn't I was only in a CMO continental unit I wasn't in an international unit um but like when the loyal officers when the patent broker issue came out um when they canceled family and and having kids you know those were things that even in the CMO we had a really hard time dealing with because it was almost violated direct policy and it was like You're getting all these orders down line and you're like, wait a second, like, (laughs) and then all of a sudden they're gone or it's like, apply it this way. And, you know, so it was, it was, um, it was tricky. One of the first things when I, when I ended up at flag, all I brought was a duffel bag full of clothes and my letters from LRH. And because I didn't have, I mean, I was 14, 15 years old, so I didn't really have much else. Um, and what I only had a letters agenda.
0: from LRH. Did you have?
1: Well, you know how you could write a letter to LRH at the Mission or Org. And mm-hmm. I, I was, I, my dad. You know, we wrote them, not all the time, but often enough, and he would respond. At least, so I thought. Um, right. <laughs> right. Well, and you know what's strange is like what, right when I got done with my CMOIPF, I was like, you know, well, I have my letters from LRH. And I think our port captain at the time, which is the person in charge of PR and and public relations for your org, was like, oh, Sea Org number 1 does that. He never signed any of that. And I was just like... He, he just told you that? Yeah. And it was like, well, he doesn't have the time. He's so busy, so he has a unit to do it. And, da, da, da. and I was like, oh, of course, right, because he's doing really important stuff. And I mean, I'm thinking... Even though it says right there that I can do every and I'll sign and do read. I'm like, wait a second. Exactly.
0: Hubbard literally wrote (laughs) policy that says, I will see every one of your letters. I want to hear from you. And it's called the SO1 or number one line. Right. and it's and it's this very important thing in Scientology. When Hubbard was alive, this was a thing. He got bags of letters from people, and he did. He got a lot of letters. And there are so many stories going back to Hannah uh, Eltringham on the ship of throwing bags of letters over the side <laughs> because they had just gone for months without being answered, and nobody right. had the time to deal with it. So right, they just yeah. they just threw them over the side, you know.
1: Oh, that's hilarious! But exactly, so it's those it's those little moments of like, wait a second, and and in the meantime, it was even like we were really getting pushed for flag uh, the for the FSO gross income. That was okay, like our that, main that,
0: yeah thing. M- money.
1: Yeah, the money. Flag Service Org. Their their gross income was the biggest stat, and we would have SEMOIN people come down all the time. And they would come down as like FSO programs ops CMO int. And then they'd send you stuff as WDC FSO <laughs> in the org. And then you'd be, and he's like, hey, did you get my message? And I was like, no, I got something from WDC FSO, which is watchdog committee flag service org. But it's the same thing. A, a, a senior you know.
0: management person who's responsible for everything that goes on in Clearwater.
1: Exactly. Basically. Right. Yeah. And we're their observation and execution arm. Right. So every once in a while they'd come into our org, but they'd make those little security mistakes. And it was it happened to me a bunch. Like it happened to me in CMO IXU, which is in Los Angeles, in the, and they're called the International Extension Unit, which is IXU. Um we ate at the dining hall at the exact dining. Like so, I ate lunch with like Norman Starkey, Gillum, Gillum, Ulisarv, <laughs> um, <laughs> <Guillaume laughs> <the seven. laughs> and um, And Pablo. I put Pablo on post. WDC Smy.:
0: Wow, um, see, very, very, very senior people in Scientology.
1: Right, I eat lunch with them every day. So, and I was going through my aunt Qualls and they're like joking about the paper and like, oh, look at the gold golf course is on the paper. And I'm like, what, you know, (laughs) like I wasn't even like called for that yet. So I saw a different side of them, which I think for me, I have a hard time. Like I had a, I was a kid in the Sea Org, you know, like, and I, we had a, a lot of fun, even though when you look back, we were working 120-hour work weeks, sleeping under our desk for four days a week. And, you know, the only time we'd be made to go home was when we were, like, smelled. We had to, like, change our clothes or something. But, oh, I mean, man. otherwise, it was just like we just did it. You know, it was just. But how we- old were you? 15, 16, 17 when
0: right. I was, And this goes yeah. back to, I mean, it, there's no judgment. There's no critical thing. Your brain's not even fully developed yet. You're 17 right. years old, you know, <laughs> exactly. and this isn't any hit on you. This is everybody. I mean, everybody who said no shit. No, nobody who's seventeen knows a goddamn thing. I mean, let's just let's just call a spade a spade, right? So yep. you're growing up, you're you know, and you're immersed in this world of Scientology your entire life or most of your life. So you know, you're learning how to sell Dianetics books when you're ten years old. The idea that you're going to question any of this is very far fetched.
1: Right. I think the biggest emotional pull was my first plane trip I ever took was from San Francisco to Florida. And my dad bought me a one-way ticket. I think I covered this on Aaron's thing. Mm -hmm. Um, He bought me a one-way ticket to Florida. And that was kind of my final straw of like, oh shit, like this is no joke. Like I'm, that's it. Like my dad doesn't want me here anymore. I have the Sea Org or I have nothing. And I remember making a conscious decision on that plane that I was going to do the best I could because I had no choice. Right. And when I got there, I'm thinking, like I said, I was going to be ethics bait. I was going straight to the RPF. I lied. I, you know, told lies about going to go into class. And, and I get there, and they're like, they did my life history. The only thing they wanted on my life history is like – um, do you have an open mind? And I was like, yes. And they're like, no, you don't. And I'm like, oh, right, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and, uh, no, a very closed mind. Yes, <laughs> right? very closed. So it doesn't mean that. It means open, but it's close. And you're like, okay, whatever, you know. Right. And that was it. Like, sex checking was like, no big deal. All my clearances and all that were just like, yeah. Oh, you grew up. my. I mean, technically, my grandfather was in it, but I, I don't call myself a third gen because I don't look at it that way because he dabbled. But my grandparents were in it. My dad was in it. My aunt, aunt and uncles were in it. So it was kind of just that, you know, it was always around. So when wow. I went there, it was, it was like sink or swim. So I remember making that conscious effort to be the best I could be and do everything I could do to succeed, you know. Well, you didn't and
0: have like, a plan B.
1: No, especially. There was no
0: escape plan for you
1: there's no being 4,000 miles away from my only home and my knowing that my dad was the one that gave me the one way ticket there. (laughs) Yeah. There wasn't a plan B. It was definitely not. (laughs) It was like, so, I mean, it tests the will of somebody, but, and again, I only realized that after I left Hmm. at the time, that was just a foregone conclusion. It was just how it was going to be. And, you know, I remember contemplating on the bus back and forth to the birthing, wow, a billion years. Like, so this lifetime, okay. And then I'll have next lifetime. (laughs) And I'm like, in the next lifetime, (laughs) like, wow, you know, and kind of coming to terms with that. It it was funny because you mentioned about the Commodore's messengers or the kids, you know, not formulating. The oldest guy in our org was Richard Franklin. And he was in ops, and he was like probably 28 at the time. And Cheryl DeChef had been our CO, um, but she left for INT or whatever. And then Tom and Jenny Devot came in.
0: Oh, um, you work with them.
1: Yeah, I worked with Tom for – he was our CO for – until I got recruited up to CST, basically. And But he was at the time – Like, I think he's, like, six years older than I was. So he was, like, in his mid-20s. So every, Pilar Saldariaga, Peter Grafton, Gavin Potter, Allison Biggs. Oh, um, Gavin Potter was there? Gavin Potter was the preps, briefing, and firing director. No shit. And I was the COPE officer. So we manned missions, like, daily. At that time, um, Ron Norton was the captain FSO, and Debbie Cook was Qualsec. Actually, she might have even been DFP at the time, the director of processing. Huh. Um, so it was a whole different, like, and again, I went through and did all the int, the int quals missions to try to get people up to int. So I knew everything. I'm like this young kid getting folders. I needed folder summaries from all their auditing and I'd be like, oh my God, that guy has, he has ants lick his balls, When, oh my God. And I'd be walking down the street going, oh God. <laughs> like, oh this yeah, the stuff like...
0: we used to read, holy shit, man.
2: Because
1: <laughs> like when you're,
0: cause it, it, just a note for everybody on this. Okay, so again, we're throwing a lot of terminology around, but basically Dylan and uh, I asked about a couple of those names because I knew those people when I was in the Sea Org later. And of course, Tom DeVac has come out. He has spoken on Leah's show. uh debbie cook has come out she ended up in court with the you know with the church and ended up
2: you know making bank because they tried to
0: (laughs) prosecute her for violating her non-disclosure agreement and she turned the tables on them big time right and ron norton's out of the sea org now he's still a scientologist so there's some of this you know where are they now kind of stuff but um, but, th- but what Dylan was doing was he was right in the middle of a very hot area of Scientology at that time. And he was manning projects and these missions to go out and handle situations. And, and, and all these young people are just, you know, flying by the seat of their pants. They got all this energy and not a whole lot of intellect, <laughs>
2: right? Just,
0: right? you know, just and they're getting orders and orders and orders and orders, and your whole day is just consumed in trying to get these orders complied with
1: absolutely. And that, as my job, I mean, you can probably figure out from my post title what I did was I coped. <laughs> I coped. <laughs> That was the cope office. So I was right below the the head of the division, who's the h c o chief or secretary. Um, who's in charge of personnel of their org? But me, I was in charge of m- the missionary unit, manning missions, getting everything. You know, every- the director of inspections and reports. The di- I was going to say, of... did
0: you have to handle ethics also?
1: Um, we had Gerhard Bauer at the time that did okay. that. Um, but we, he was the an MAA, and then we had to pull some strings to get him to be the director of the department because. Okay. Um, and, li- and like us, we weren't immune from missions either you know, we would get missions that would come in and we'd all write our OWs, our overts and withholds up and somebody would have to be the bad guy and get a head on a pike. And what's funny with like my story is I would usually be the first person to get in trouble like when those missions came, like somebody would write a KR on me and it'd be like, Oh, Dylan offered me a beer or something. And, you know, ended up being like a total, and that was like a beer that had sat in our refrigerator from before I was even there. Right. And we were like, Gerhard, you need to get rid of this. And I handed it to him and he's like, he wanted me to drink a beer. And I'm just like, what? And they don't care. They just need somebody to be that guy. So I'm like cleaning the CMO toilets. But then I would get through the ethics things fast. And like on those missions, I'd end up being the mission third or fourth. Right. And I'm then so after this, everybody's still in ethics, and I'm in the, on the mission giving people orders in my own org, you know, wow. and collecting all the all the evidence for the targets getting done, you know?
0: Yep. So here's a here's a good example, everybody, for I just thought of this. Here's a good here's a good real-world example of what it's like to be in a Scientology or a Sea Org organization and have a mission come in and start kicking ass. I'm going to give you the real world analogy for this. This is an old movie, but if anybody has ever seen Glengarry Glen Ross and the scene where Alec Baldwin comes in, and Alec Baldwin won an Academy Award for a five-minute scene in a movie, okay? And he comes in and he kicks ass i mean he it's i'm not saying this in some kind of admirable way he's a complete douche but he comes in and he gives these salesmen at a sales company the what for there's like three or four of them in there you know kevin spacey al pacino you know various other actors uh, jack lemon and he tells them one of you guys is getting fired tonight if you guys don't make sales Mm-hmm. And that's the bottom line, right? And, and I'm here to enforce that. I'm here from senior management to kick your ass, get you guys into production, and I'm not here to sympathize with you. I'm not here to be a shoulder to cry on for you. I'm not here to tell you what a good salesman you are. I'm here to tell you, you make the sales or there's the door. Right. And, that's how, and that's his attitude. And it's a very, you know, kind of kick ass and take names attitude. That is a Sea Org mission. Absolutely. Exactly the way L. Ron Hubbard described it should run. And so Dylan's talking about, you know, even at the CMO, they were getting missions like that. Absolutely. You know, and he's, and he's you know, the young innocent guy who's, you know, I gave somebody a beer, you know, <laughs> like this is <laughs> the kind of shit people are writing each other up for.
1: Right. Like, well, because you know, we would spend days, like we spent, on one mission, we spent probably 10 days for our entire study time, which was two and a half hours a day, everybody was writing up overts and withholds, and nothing came up because we really were really good people right? <laughs> doing everything we could to, right. co- to get every order done, you know? Yeah. And so finally, they had to find some stupid little thing. And, oh, there we go. Now we found the why. Let's move on. Du, 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 you know, and it's like, whew, yeah. that's over with. And now we can go through our conditions. And, yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I was on the opposite side of that, too. I did a, um, a sit handling mission into PAC crew when Hayden James was the CO. And we RPF, we got the whole org. It was Don, Jason, and I. And we flew from Flag to L.A. in the middle of the night mustered the org when we got there the whole org rpf the commanding officer in front of the entire org and put a new co on post
0: and that was hayden james that you rpf and that was that was hayden james wow of course um, he's out of the c org now too he's you know yeah i he's, think he's been on a show or two or something i've seen him
1: around but something he's yeah yeah. I, I worked with him a bit when I was in Colorado and, and he's, he still does the management technology kind of.
0: Okay. So you go out there, you kick ass and, and send this guy to the RPF. So interesting child experience there or, or young adult, I guess I should say. Right. Cause you're, you know, you're being brought up in this and this is a, you know, as for anybody who hasn't watched any earlier interviews, I'm sure most of you guys have, um, you know how intense this environment is, right? There's not a moment to rest. They're flying around in the middle of the night, waking people up and and this kind of thing. This is just par for the course. This is just how the Sea Org is. And it was really wild in the 80s. It was pretty-
1: Oh gosh. You know? Yeah, we would, wake, we would wake up Ron Norton, who's the captain flag crew or FSO, and be like, hey, we're manning this mission. You need to sign this right now. Like Gavin Potter and I. And we would go around, we manned like- people that weren't supposed to be t- like class 12s who are like the Uber auditors that audit like the most expensive processes in Florida, um, which are the L's just to throw that out there for some yep. more confusion. <laughs> 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 uh, but the most expensive pro And so th- there was orders to never touch them. And we, man, those people on missions, we, man, I mean, it was, um, they would see us coming and people would just be like, Oh God. <laughs> yep. Cause we go through and just, you're holding this post, you're doing that. You're coming with us and man it on the mission. It's like, holy crap.
0: Well, exactly. and and it was and it, and this isn't an, this is just as just as a little you know uh, learning moment here, like like this is really demonstrative of how Scientology or the sea organization part of Scientology really shoots themselves in the foot over and over again. Here you have two. Organizations. You have the Flag Service organization run by this guy named Ron Norton. He's the commander. His job is to make money, 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 money. money. Just pull it in. Just with a high-powered vacuum. That is his job. And he's his assets to do that are these high-trained powerhouse auditors in Scientology. These Class Twelve auditors who can deliver this special kind of auditing that costs like ten thousand dollars for 12 and a half hours of auditing at this level. They're making big time money. And here come a couple kids, (laughs) right? (laughs) And the middle of the night, knocking on his door going, we're taking one of your high powered (laughs) auditors for one of our projects. And we, two little snot nosed kids, never ran a service or don't know really a whole lot about it, have their own orders, their own priorities that are coming down hard. And they're just going in and taking who they need. And there's nothing Ron Norton can do about it. And
1: he's just. Except for saying, yes, sir. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he's like, "Ah, you're taking,
0: you know, and he's making. And so there's this tension between these organizations inside of Scientology. And they're fighting at each other. And this is just, again, standard operating procedure. To this day, this is how Scientology operates.
1: Right. And even when Ron Norton got taken off post and sent up to Int, I was actually the messenger that drove him to the airport and, you know, gave him like his basically, you're going up for cleanup. And and we were good. You know, the other side of that, too, is a lot of people we got I got along quite well with Ron. Norton. He was actually my friend on Facebook up until about six months ago when somebody must have ratted him out that I was declared or something wow. but i didn't i didn't comment on his thing i just was like you know because i considered him a friend like there's a lot of people that i kind of saw through the crap and was tried to deal with more on a humanity kind of level um but scientology policy the way it is you know you have to do that um, and he still is definitely trying to do the public scientology thing and do those networking so uh, but, yeah, yeah, you you had a lot of – there was a lot of – I think there was two kinds of people, and, and that kind of brings up the whole David Miscavige thing, um, is there were messengers that – and upper management that really believed and cared, and even though the policy was kind of ruthless, they they chose to deal with it more in the spirit of the policy rather than the letter of the policy – and then there were people that were just downright ruthless and mean, and they would just smile while you went, like got screwed. And even though they could say something to be like, Hey, wait a minute. We all kind of, they would just let you let it happen. And they would make people call them, sir. And I was never one of those messengers that was like a jerk. Right. At least I didn't think so. I, <laughs> <laughs> um because it was weird to feel that power it was weird to like walk into a room and have people kind of you know boom or salute you and you know there's a there's a flag order called flag order 38 um right and it's it's a an interesting a lot of people interpreted it um as and, and the name of it's called etiquette yep so it was to me etiquette was like if somebody's walking up the stairs with a big, huge box in their hands, it doesn't matter whether you're a messenger or anything, you move out of the way, you know, you don't stand in doorways, you don't, you know, etiquette stuff, you look people in the eye. And a lot of people took that as like, you better call me sir or you're gonna get written up or I'm sending you to ethics, you know, I'm a, do you know who I am? And uh, I never really, you know, it, it was always, I've always believed in that you're either like a player coach or you're kind of a, my way or the highway coach. And and so I've always believed that like, Hey, if I can do it, you can do it and I'll help you out, you know? And yeah, I'm in this position, but I'm not trying to be like a tyrant kind of, right. you know, this isn't tyranny. This is like, Hey, let's all, we're all in the same boat, right? We're all trying to get this done. Let's all do it. And, yep. Those people, you know, I don't know. <laughs> do you think
0: that, do, how do you think it broke down for you percentage wise as far as, as, far as those two types of people that, that if, from your experience in, in Florida?
1: Well, like, okay, so a good example is like Tom DeVock came in as the, the commanding officer for CMO. Mm-hmm. And he commanded a lot of presence, you know, he, but he was a nice freaking guy. Like you talk to him and you're like, hey, I like this guy. This guy's cool. He makes sense. I want to do this for this guy. And then there was like Jenny DeVocht, who was the deputy commanding officer internal. And she'd come in just screaming. Like, yeah, right, 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 you're just like and I'm sure she had a lot of stuff coming down from her, but she did it through just fear and intimidation. Right. And that's and so it was a, it was kind of um, we had a our other Deputy commanding officer was a lady named Madge Johnson. Um, super nice girl, but she kind of did the fear and intimidation. Pilar Saldariaga, another one, kind of fear and intimidation, been there forever, like command 40 or tone 40 command intention. Um, but for the most part, the rank and file at most orgs were good people, man. Like they were, you know, really nice, good people. Caring people that they thought they were making the world a better place. And that was just happened to be our job at the time. Um, I think that's what also brought like, so when I got recruited to CST, um, I was in the CMO. We had no business taking apart our org because my wife at the time was the HCO chief. (laughs) And she got taken first, and then I got taken right after. So we just basically dismantled the personnel department in that org. And um, it wasn't just a simple matter of going directly to CST, which at the time, all I knew and all was told to me was called LRH Archives.
0: Right. They didn't call it CST or Church of Spiritual Technology.
1: Absolutely not. Okay. It It was the Archive Project or it was LRH Archives. Okay. Um, and that's, even the CMO units thought it was LRH archives. And there there was actually a um, office in LA that was the archives office. And there was okay. like one or two staff members, but they weren't even cleared to go to the actual base. They were just doing, getting, gathering any kind of masters, any kind of original um, documents around the pack area. Okay. And then those would get shipped up to... The actual main base of archives, right?
0: And by originals, you mean original copies of L. Ron Hubbard written issues, letters, directives, orders, anything.
1: Recordings, absolutely. Or original masters. Right. A lot of the recordings, you couldn't get the original, or they were so deteriorated. So you had um, original masters, or I forget the terminology. Copy masters. Yeah, copy, there you go. And those were acceptable because that's all that was available. Right. Everything else had been, but everything else, they were going for original. Like even the issues that had XXXX on it were very suspect. They wanted to find the original handwritten, you know, so there was a big, of course, that was also the time when, and you were in PAC at this time, I think. When they, right behind Lebanon Hall, they had a couple semis that were always backed up that were full of documents. And those, do you, do you remember all the vetting missions uh, that were going on then? The, the which missions? The vetting.
0: No, I don't remember those.
1: So, right, this was like when the IRS, we were still trying to get tax exempt status.
0: Okay. About what year are we talking about?
1: Eighty Late 88, mid 89... Okay. Um, so I was 89. I had come
0: I had gone down for training in eighty seven eighty eight to pack and I was down there for about four months and then I went down again at the end of nineteen eighty eight and okay. I was down there for eighty eight eighty nine for about four months. So and, that
1: would have been the time. Yeah. yeah,
0: and part of that time I earned money for my room and board because my org Santa Barbara was so broke ass. They weren't paying for anything for me. So I did proofreading for LRH book compilations, which was another unit.
1: Right. Yeah. The comps, LRH comps. Um, And they were, was that through bridge? Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, Well, there was two semis. And so the big fear at the time, because, so I went from CMO in FLAG, which was called CMO Clearwater to CMO International Extension Unit Okay. while I was getting my clearances to go up to LRH archives.
0: To go up to archives. Okay. And 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 when we talk about going up, we mean going up the organizing board, up the command structure. That's what we're talking about. And physically speaking, we're talking about going to a confidential location. So you're getting all these clearance activities on you. And you don't even know where you're going
1: (laughs) oh no clue at all yeah no we we just knew that we were selected for a project and that we're we're taking i mean obviously it was important because we were taken out of the biggest priority org and area to go there yeah so it was something that was like oh my god this must be huge and and honestly you don't even have the time to think about that because I got there, I'm doing clearances, they're making me redo my purif. I think I had to do my CCRD, which was the clear certainty rundown. Because I all I had ever received um in the Seorg was FPRD auditing. Okay. And and which is the false purpose rundown, which is basically like a, a all-lifetime sec check. <laughs> <laughs> right. what, and in that, I accidentally originated the clear cognition and because I just was like, I'd had, I'd gone through all this past life crap, and one day I was just like, I get it. Like I'm totally here, and I'm totally, and they were just like, wait a minute, and I, they couldn't get me back in session because I was like, my needle was just, and I was just happy, and I'm just like, I'm just doing it, you know, like I love my friends, <laughs> I love it, and they're just like, shit. So they had me do that. They had me do some um, auditing stuff to try to, for, as part of my clearances, basically. Yep. Um. It's but basically
0: whole... clearances mean that they are trying to make sure that the qualifications are being met for right. you to go up the line. And the qualifications just become more and more stringent the higher up you go, which is why it takes time to do these clearances. And most of the clearances consist of auditing or mostly sec checking. They're, they're, they're asking, have you done this bad thing? Have you done this other bad thing? You know, what about this over here? Did you do anything like this? And they're they're asking you all these very, very personal, invasive questions to get what kind of bad stuff you've been up to. The idea being not necessarily that they're assuming that you're guilty. They just want to check and make sure that nothing that there's no skeletons in your closet that you're not. With that you're withholding, that they right. that they feel that they need to know about before they send you up the line, and they're mostly concerned about security leaks, or right. people who have ill intentions toward L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige, uh, that kind of thing. That's what they're looking for.
1: And really, it's funny because all the all the messengers and stuff had already you know been through that so many times. I found we were really dealing with crap that I had been doing in the sea org. Like it wasn't stuff others. It was like, okay, well you falsely reported. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe yeah. not. And, yep. and like, so it was like stuff like that, that they just kept going over. And I think Mike Gilcrest was actually my um, sec checker for a long time. Hmm. Um, but I, at the same time I was doing a ton of missions cause I was a fully Trained Missionaire ah. had, I had done over like 30 or 40 successful missions when I was in Clearwater so Ixu wow, a hold of well I did missions into the Diana. I did like the Diana was like six miles from flag and nobody knew about it It was like totally confidential and I did like get almost cleared to do this stupid project to go see if it was even like able to be refit The um, Diana
0: was a little boat, right?
1: Yeah, it was a little boat, like small boat, like 15 or 20 feet long. But yeah, it was little. Right. Um, but it was dry docked. And it was, you know, it was weird as they were thinking about getting rid of it. And this was like part of the original armada of the Sea Org, you know? And it's like, that's where you kind of looking back, you realize that David Miscavige was already trying to kind of erode away that stuff and stamp his own name. in. Yep. And uh, but so I was doing missions for CMYXU. And one of the missions I did, it was actually there's missions and then there's projects. Yep. And then there's observation missions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Why don't you that, explain what the difference is between those?
1: So an observation mission is um, you work with uh, the division called ops bureau, which is the operations bureau. And they, they basically go off of what's called the data series. And when they're doing an eval of an area or an evaluation of an area as to why their stats crashed or there's problems, they can make little projects where you go out and gather data to give them more info for their evaluation so they can complete it. And that's basically an ops mission. Yeah. A a project is basically a little like going up to check out the Diana to see if it's worthy to be reef. It's like some order that came down. And so the operations bureau is like, okay, we got to do a little project and go check this out. And then it goes to action bureau and action bureau man's the mission, sends it out. And then they go, okay, do your little targets and this and that. And then there's sit handling missions and sit handling missions are based on completed and approved evals that have been sent up lines and approved and then now have actionable things that need to be done to handle the area.
0: Right. Sit, so those sit- are handling, meaning situation,
1: situation handling. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So these were like a bunch of projects that we were doing in PAC. And at the time, it was even when you're on the mission, they don't give you all the, the data. So they were, there was all these vetting missions. And all these missions were to go through all this paperwork from a specific time which was when LRH got off the lines to current and we had to delete and cut out, physically cut out with razor blades, anything that would have shown that he was giving direct orders to any Scientology entity. Right. In preps, for the audit that was coming for sure. Scientology was so paranoid that the IRS was going to audit them because they knew they had dirty hands. They knew that LRH and LRH knew that he was on the lines. And so there was this, it, it goes in conjunction with a lot of people have heard the all clear where they're trying to get LRH to not be in hiding anymore. And that's like DM and Marty Rathbun's big purpose in life. And most of the Sea Org was occupied with them getting the all clear so he could come back. Well, this was part of it.
0: Right. So this was still when
1: Hubbard was still alive? No, no, no. This was after. This was when they're trying to get tax exempt status. Right.
0: And this is still when the conflict and the war is still going full steam, head to head. There's no agreements. There hasn't been a meeting yet. David Miscavige hasn't met with the IRS commissioner. It's still war.
1: It's still a chess game, basically. Yeah. It's still like, okay, here's what they're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover our ass and make sure that there's nothing. And you can, and they were going to basically give them like three or four semi trucks full of paper and be like, go ahead and audit us. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, this will take us 10 years to go through. Yeah. And, but, and all of it would be like cheese paper, It'd just be like vetted holes everywhere. So anybody that referred to, source any referred to where he was or any of that stuff was getting cut out so I did a bunch of missions running and making sure the right personnel were there to vet stuff that, that had the right clearances so you not only had to go through the stuff you couldn't show them where Crestline is you had to, so you had to have people that had clearances or people that didn't, and then separate the papers so that they could vet certain stuff, and then other people could vet certain stuff. And, and
0: I imagine that was not an easy task because how many people were in PAC who had clearances to go up the lines?
1: Yeah, barely. I mean, even half of all of CMYXU was supposed to be in cleared. But they had been rifled through as well. So, I mean, like half of them had clearances. Right. And this is
0: just the kind of misorganization and nonsense that goes on every day in Scientology that makes life difficult for Sea Org members.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But but it answers the
0: question, what do we do all day? This is
1: the kind of (laughs) (laughs) shit. Exactly. Just not. And it's all most important thing in the world until thursday and then let's start it all again you know it was every week it was just this monumental oh my god this is this is what is going to save the planet or not right like that was the uh, estimation of effort you know they use words you like,
0: ever question what was going on during any of this
1: um no i i don't think so you know it's funny because I did my Purif in LA and I used to run up to Griffith park every day and back. Mm -hmm. I could have ran anywhere I wanted, but I ran back every single day, you know? And, and to me, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't even, I, I didn't even question leaving. I didn't even question it, um, until much later, you know? And, and when I did get my clearances and went up to CST, it was, it it was like oh my god I finally reached this great place I finally reached like utopia kind of like we are really this is what it's all about like there were still hill tens and still orders up the Yang and weird like DM changing shit and my my weekly reports went through ASI I, I think as you go up higher you realize the structure a lot more yep and you realize like oh this is how it all works you know right and it it doesn't change how you look at stuff it just changes kind of your perspective on things you know you're i'm dealing with like terry gamboa norman starkey i'm dealing with you know shelly miscavige all the time every day i'm dealing with david miscavige on a weekly basis Like in person or in writing, I'm dealing with him on a daily basis on telexes and mercs, you know. And So let's
0: talk about this because I've got tons of questions for you about this thing now, okay? So you get cleared to go from L.A. up to CST – you're dealing with these guys on a daily basis now. You're literally like rubbing elbows or interacting with the senior, senior people of Scientology. Did you realize that was the situation, the position you were in at that point?
1: Um, well, when I got there, my my wife, uh, who was Bronwyn Bolger originally, um, was the HCO chief there. <laughs> she got posted as the HCO, same as in Clearwater. And um, I think I expedited in that division for about um, a week or so. And then I replaced um, Bruce Bolstad, who was Maureen Bolstad's husband, as the estate sec. So in this org, our um, division of delivery was building buildings. <laughs> so I okay. was like in charge of the tech division, which was building buildings. And we had, um, or the estates division, which was three. And then we had a three A, which was all our external. Um, division four was the archival and division five was still qual.
0: Okay. Okay. But yeah, archives
1: was the division So let's,
0: four. let's, let's explain this a little bit. Just so people are clear. because um You know, a lot of the organizations of Scientology are directly delivering services, auditing or training to public people. Uh, There are city-level churches, and then you have the Sea org level organizations that are service organizations like Flag in Clearwater or Asho in Los Angeles, and they deliver higher level services. But this, this CST, isn't up there delivering any services. Public don't even know it exists. right. They're up there and their estates area is building these archive projects, these tunnels in the ground that are holding all these these vaults that are holding all these archived materials. That's what you were in charge of.
1: Right. And, and it's, okay. for the first bit, even when I was posted as the estate sec, um, I didn't even know there was external other bases besides the current base. And right. it was very compartmentalized even at that level. You know, we, we had, and I was actually replacing. So in our entire estates division, we had the estate sec and a cook (laughs) and that was it. Wow. That was, that was everybody. That was the whole estates division. Okay. Um, The cook you couldn't screw with because she cooked for the whole base. So she was pretty much untouchable. Most thankless job you'll ever want in your life. Um, but I went and replaced Bruce Volstad, who was the former estate sec, who was going to the RPF as soon as he finished turning this hat over to me.
0: Oh, inn. wow. Okay. And so he, knew he it. So, so he was basically getting kicked off the job in disgrace.
1: Yes. Okay. But he was able to turn over his hat because there was so many things going on or his job title uh, right. or his job. Um,
0: turn, yeah, turning over your hat means turning over your job and all your pending projects to somebody else. That is extremely rare. Usually right. when somebody goes to the RPF, they're just gone. Just boom, where'd they go? They're gone.
1: Exactly. So that's exactly. quite, he
0: must've had a lot of stuff on his plate to have to turn it over.
1: Well, we were building at the time I I took over um we hadn't completed the storage facility the underground vault at that base yet it was in progress um, the lrh house was about halfway done um we had an exec log cabin that was being built that was just starting we, the wood hadn't even been shipped in um we had all the little cabins like if you've ever seen a video of cst you see the main gate you can see all the little houses up there those had just been built when i got there
0: okay so so this was at the current location where we've seen the drone footage
1: yep yep absolutely
0: that's where you Um, were
1: that's the main cst base that's the headquarters for cst
0: and how many Um, staff
1: uh, at the time there was 14, I think when I got there, so 15, but then Bruce left and was 14 again. And then, <laughs> so 14 to 16 ish came coming, you know, coming for people and leaving and coming. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There were more, but we didn't know about those yet. Cause there was external people that were out in external bases that we had no idea about. Right. Um, so it was kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, you didn't even, I didn't even realize that half my division, I didn't even know about. Basically, <laughs> yeah.
0: When he turned all that over to you, he did not turn over that part?
1: No. uh-uh. Because um, you weren't I,
0: cleared to find out about it yet.
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was like a probationary period because after about three months, um, I was sat down by the commanding officer for CST uh, with a guy named Russ Bellin, And... Um, he sat me down in the dining hall and showed me all the advices for CST and how it became a project and what the intention was behind it and the symbols and, and a bunch of stuff like that. Um, and then I got told about the external divisions and subsequently then I ended up going out to New Mexico and Patrola, and, and I ended up going out to these different bases that we had at the time. Um, and that's right when we were actually acquiring um, Crestline. Uh, the old LRH residence, which was never meant to be an archival facility. It was just meant to be – it was given to us as property. Okay. Um, so th- I did learned a lot about that, Did you say
0: that – I'm sorry. Did you say that there was an, a, a, a vault at that location? No. Okay. Not. There was not.
1: Okay. No, and there was never – unless that changed, there was never – that was never intended to be a, a vault site. Okay. Um, it was intended to be just an LRH – like – historical site basically um it wasn't intended to have a vault there
0: okay what and the, the the cst location
1: no the main cst location definitely had a vault oh it does have a vault oh, oh for sure yeah um okay it's and i think when i when tony ortega did he got that footage he um didn't send me the video but he sent me stills because <laughs> i think he didn't want me to i don't know um But he wouldn't send me the video. He just sent me stills and he asked me to name all the buildings on the main site, um, which is up in Lake Arrowhead or Crestline or Twin Peaks. It has a bunch of different names. We kind of refer to it as um, Twin Peaks or Crestline because that's where we go a lot. Um, But it was was known as the Lake Arrowhead compound or base. And that's
0: the main CST facility and that's where you worked.
1: Right. You know, it was interesting when I got first sent up there, um, all my Sea Org clothing and everything was left there. I wasn't able to take it with me um, because we didn't wear Sea Org uniforms. We wore jeans with button up shirts and cowboy boots was our uniform. Cowboy boots? Yeah. Cowboy boots. Are you serious? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And they were pink (laughs) shirts, like pink button-up shirts. What? Uh, They might have changed them from then. I I hope they did. But it was... Pink (laughs) shirts? We just... It was the whole idea to not be affiliated with Sea Org or Scientology. You know, it was a big deal. And part of that was because of the whole tax exemption thing going on. Okay. So that was... They were really trying to be... And later finding out that... Um, Russ Bellin, Jane McNairn, and I think Sarah Bellin at the time were on um, the list of trustees for the Church of Spiritual Technology, with a few lawyers, Lyman Spurlock, a few other guys, um, and those changed a little bit as people left and came into the fold and and stuff like that. But. They, we held all the original trademarks and copyrights for CST, or for Scientology, and those were leased to RTC for like a dollar or something. And it was, that's, you know, um, there's a policy in Scientology, I, I don't know if it's a HCO policy letter, or if it's an advice, but it's, I remember it being called like the umbrella policy or something, where after the Larry Wollersheim case... The One Thin Dime case, I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, I did, like, OTTR zero on a building forever, like, in San Francisco when they did that, when I was, like, super young. And uh, after that, like, he almost took down, at that time, it was called the Church of California, or Church of Scientology, California. Yes, I think that was the,
0: ama- that was the the Church of Scientology, California was one of the original Scientology organizations going all the way back to the 50s right. and it was the main financial hub of Scientology for many 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 years.
1: Exactly. So what happened was inadvertently was that Larry Woolersheim sued that entity and yep. almost took down the entire organization.
2: That's right.
1: So Immediately after that, like Scientology is kind of sneaky and deceptive and those stupid little wogs, um, they decided to make umbrella corporations. And that's when like wise, able, all those little pink, pink, pink started popping up. So you couldn't sue one entity and that sort of plays into CST, RTC, gold, all these different groups, bridge. You know, they're all their own entities. So if you have a problem and you sue one, you might take that down, but you don't touch the whole organization. You just touch exactly. one little small part of it. That's um, right. And I think that's what a lot of people with their conspiracy theories don't understand is that it's done intentionally. There, there's not some lawyers running the thing, collecting money and ha ha ha. We got It's David Miscavige is running or whoever would have taken those reins is running that and that's policy that's not their brainchild they're not that smart to figure that shit out but that's 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 what they hired the
0: lawyers for
1: absolutely and i think that's subsequently why it became policy is okay look you don't want to get destroyed in one fail swoop well make a lot of bunch of little entities and do all these little things and that's kind of where all that came from so when i was up there that's sort of what I understood it as was like, cause I'm getting direct orders from David Miscavige like daily. And, but we're technically all above him.
0: You know? Did that ever bother you? Did you ever wonder what the, f- wh- how is this little guy giving me orders when I'm here and he's there?
1: Absolutely not. Um, I th- And I think the reason why is um, we were doing it for a higher purpose. And, these unenlightened humans that don't know anything, we're just telling them what they want to hear. So it's like it's like yeah. that whole ha-ha-ha, nudge-nudge, wink-wink thing of like, there was no doubt that David Miscavige was COB. You know, you didn't even refer to him as David Miscavige. You referred to him as COB in the Sea Org.
0: Right. I mean, so by was, the time you got up there, his position was already solidified as that. There was no questioning David Miscavige about anything. Well,
1: and the fact that I was a messenger during that time. So it right. was like, it was already, you know, WDCC WDCCMOA. that was, we were programmed. That's I think why they put a lot of those people up there. Right. Um, was because, and it was weird because not everybody there were messengers. So I was told before I got up there that your messenger status no longer applies. And for me, knowing all the messenger orders, I was like, huh, that's interesting. So there was like little SO number one, this and that, like all these little things that were like, hmm, that's strange. Even though I'd been raised in it, these were direct like policy viol, these are direct contradiction to the purpose of what I was doing. Right. So I think those kind of eventually built up a little bit to where I, you know, I kind of started thinking. Well, this is what I'm doing, but it's kind of strange that there's all these like um, inconsistencies. You right. Know? right, and, and That's so, how it
0: starts is you're just like, well, this is weird, but I don't right. have time to think about this right now. I just got to get my work done.
1: Yeah. And, and when we got up there, it was like, it was the first time I ever got bonuses. It was the first time I actually ever got paid all the time. And it was, so there were some perks to being, I got like a Christmas. I got a $400 bonus. $400. For the Sea
0: Org, that is extremely generous.
1: And they let us go down to the San Bernardino mall and spend it. What? <laughs> we were like, what two hours. Wow.
0: Talk about pampered privilege in the Sea Org, man. I'm we not got kidding. Mop,
1: We got Mont Blanc pens one year with our initials on it. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was the bomb. Uh, How many years did you work at CST? I was there for almost four years.
0: Okay, so you probably covered this with Aaron. It was a long interview, but tell me, you know, succinctly, I suppose, but as, as best you can, what was the purpose of CST according to those advices? You are literally the only person I have ever spoken to who has read those.
1: Um, My, yeah, apparently you know. a couple of other people have but I think they've read him at a, like a few ASI staff read him um, apparently Tom Devox said he's read him but I don't know how he did he said he's been on the base too which I'm not quite so sure about but okay. um, either
0: you way you mean the CST base
1: yeah which okay. was you know one of the expressed things was that nobody from Int would go to the base like David Miscavige didn't come to the base all the time at
0: but all he, but ever. he did come when he wanted to
1: no, when I was there, he never came to the base.
0: Oh, he never came to the base.
1: No, it wasn't even like the whole, and I think a lot of it was because of the tax, because exe- CST was also trying to get tax exemption. Okay. And Scientology was trying to get tax exemption at the same time. Okay. So there wasn't supposed to be a lot of intermingling. Okay. Of it. My weekly reports were in briefcases we took Polaroids and put captions, typed out captions on the bottom, and we had uh, photo albums for every building project we had, yeah. and they were hand routed. They weren't mailed. They weren't. They were hand routed to ASI, and then from ASI they were hand routed up to INT, to his office. Okay. So there was, there were. We were also doing a microwave um, communications thing at the time, so that. INT and CST could communicate on a private network through microwave rather than be able to be intercepted. So there was a lot of attention being paid to keep it very, very separate. And very, very, you know, even though at the time um, Tom Vorm and Russ Bellin were going to uh, overseas to get the time capsules done, they were also working on the Mark VIII's. But right. that was like a whole hush, 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 hush thing because it was conflict of interest and weird shit like that.
0: So, That's right. Um, oh, no, big time. If, if I mean, because the CST is supposed to be – well, as I understand it from a legal perspective, they own all those copyrights and trademarks of Scientology. But they don't deliver any Dianetics or Scientology. Hell, most Scientologists don't even know it exists so how could you ever sue it out of existence? They're not up there doing anything. They just own those copyrights and lease them to this other organization, RTC.
1: You know what's just funny about that is I most Sea Org members do, don't know it exists, but almost all public did know it exists because ASI was selling them all these gold-bound and hardcover books. For the LRH archive project.
0: Well, they knew about LRH archives, but they didn't know about Church of Spiritual Technology.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, it was it weird, like we remember I was talking about FSO programs ops and WDC FSO. Yep. I had two logons. When I was at CST, I had EstateSec CST and EstateSec LRH Archives. Oh. So I could send messages as EstateSec CST to certain people. And then everybody else, like if I was trying to, if we were trying to find stuff or talk to people in PAC or estates, I'd have to send it as a state sec LRH archives.
0: See, that's what I'm talking about. Kept, you know, this is this is a perfect example of that compartmentalization even within one organization.
1: Right, right. You know, exactly. it's
0: got its own internal face and its external face, which is a completely it's a facade. It's a whole different right. thing, you know.
1: Well, there was half the staff, I when I got told about the other locations, we didn't share that with the other staff. Like yep. all the staff at CST didn't even know we had other vault locations or anything. It was I mean, isn't all right that, there. Amazing. It was weird. It was a weird and I think part of the explanation of it was was that the external sites weren't ever meant to be inhabited. Unless there was like a big apocalyptic event or anything.
0: Oh, so you so the idea was they were going to be built, and then it was going to be hands off.
1: Well, there's supposed to be a caretaker there. Okay, ideally, caretaker. Okay. Ideally, a couple or just one person, but no more than two people were ever supposed to be there. And even everything that would be done, maintenance wise, would be done either by outside contractors. It's kind of how the New Mexico vaults got built. Locally by contractors same as the archives in Lake Arrowhead got built built by local contractors Same as Petrola in Northern, California That's exactly they built everything was built by local contractors with one or two people overseeing everything there, right? So it was very compartmentalized and you know, what's even more compartmentalized is we didn't go out and scout the locations out They were given to us We didn't have any control by the in landlords office, and by RTC. That's who went and found. We didn't go and find perspective. The Lady Washington mine, any of that stuff. There was. We didn't have any part of going out and procuring new property. See that's kind of
0: that's semi interesting to me. That's kind of a really because I I know isn't that weird? It is kind of weird because what the hell is RTC and Int Landlord Office doing with that stuff? They're not even supposed to know about it,
1: right? Well, of course they know about it because they're given the copyrights and blah blah blah. Well, yeah, I I mean mean,
0: RTC sure, but Int Landlord Office.
1: Well, and and I'm sure that was directly run. I mean, it was probably one person in Int Landlord that knew that did just did that and worked. So it's like when the RTC reps kinda came out and like bypassed everybody. Yeah. Like I'm sure it was a very similar, like, okay, you have to do this. And um, even like even in ASI, which was highly, highly quality, only certain like Norman Starkey knew all everything, the CO ASI knew everything. And that was about it. Like not too many other ASI people knew anything about and that's that's who funded everything at CST. That was one of the expressed purposes of ASI was to fund all of the CST along with SO number 1. Right.
0: Um, Because the church money, the service money, and the IAS money keeps the Church of Scientology International running. That's right. It's not about feeding that money to archives or to uh, ASI. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Even
1: though those payments end up going and getting funneled that way. (laughs) Well, sure. Some money. (laughs) So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because I know when I know from what I've seen in writing that when ASI and CST were very first formed, if I remember correctly, and I might be wrong about this, but um, there was an initial loan of money from or an initial payment of money from Scientology to these organizations, to kind of, it was like seed money, is kind of how I imagined what I was looking Well,
1: the original, yeah. I was part of the second manning of it. So there was the LRH Archives project. Yeah. And it was done as kind of like a garrison mission. Um, which is the only other mission we didn't cover? A Garrison mission is basically a mission that turns into a job. <laughs> it's a permanent. It's like a <laughs> <an laughs> permanent
2: mission. Yeah,
1: it starts out as a project, and it pretty much turns into what you're doing for the rest of your life or for the foreseeable future. Um, and that's what the LRH Archives project started as, and then turned into an actual entity and got formed that way. Right. So, so the 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 advices were. Um, pretty much as described um, other than, and and what was described is basically preserving the technology for all time. Okay. And for mankind. And it was everything that we did there was to be as long as humanly possible at the time, what we could do to make um, facilities that would last as long as possible That's why the containers were done. That's why the fireproof blankets. That's why, you know, every area had a different. I think Petrola and um, the main base were very similar in how they were built, which was corrugated tubing and then earth over it, where New Mexico was built into a mountain and tunneled in and then limestone slurry and, you know, stuff like that. So it was to use the means of the area. So that you could make a facility to preserve the technology for as long as humanly possible, and you know five hundred years, a thousand years were kind of the goals of that were like in case something happens and in this time it'll be and everything like Nakamichi dragons are in those vaults, um, reel to reels, um, Nakamichi Dragon is the um, approved cassette decks to play LRH archives got our it. LH lectures. Okay. Those are the, the decks. So, you know, we reached out to Nakamichi and, and got these things and archived them. And and so there's all these approved things. There's reel to reel, there's um, discs, there's albums, there's record player. I mean, that was a big thing was like, there's not just one source of media, there's multi. source. and then we of course had to be true to policy still, So it wasn't like you could just be like, oh, we're going to use CD. We use CD technology too, but you had to use the approved players. (laughs) You couldn't just find the newer player. You got to use what LRH said. It's like rainbow vacuums, right?
2: (laughs) Right.
1: Or telexes. (laughs) Right, or telexes. You know, it's just – it's kind of – it's that whole – some things you just couldn't change. Um, And, you know, what's interesting about this season of uh, Leah Remini's show is Tom DeVoc touched on something just very happenstance that for me, I was like, yeah, duh. But I didn't realize that not everybody realized that like, didn't realize it in that when I was a messenger, it was a foregone conclusion that LRH was coming back. Like we knew right. that he was, it was all kind of like, yeah, well, he's, you know, he went off to target Two, And that wasn't the end of the story. It was that he's going to come back. And Honestly, I kept thinking back. I'm like, God, I don't know if that was policy, if it was just rumor or whatever. But when I got to CST, it was part of the advices that our job was to caretake a young LRH if he came back. And I remember being –
0: I want to know everything about that. Tell me – everything you know about that
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the there wasn't like that's how we built we built the houses so that he would have a support structure there like we built him not with like a nanny place but like there would be a complement of messengers like almost like it would be almost like he was on when he was on the ship he would have his complement of people to expedite all his stuff Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that he was going to come back and have to remember. He would already be the sentient being. Right. But I remember thinking, like, there'd be this, like, 11-year-old kid that would walk up to the gates and be like, hey, I'm here. And we'd be like, okay, come on in, you know, <laughs> and it'd be like. "Did hey. he?
0: Did he describe any kind of protocol or procedure of coming back?
1: No, it was very general. And that, okay. you know, looking back at it now – it, I, I've I've actually done a bit of like um, digging to people that were at ASI that have read certain advices, uh-huh. just to try to clarify if those were, in fact, written by LRH, or if they were written for LRH, or if they were written, to be, passed as LRH. Right. Because and, and the reason why I say that is, all of the messenger orders. They weren't written by LRH. They were written by Janice Grady, actually. <laughs> no shit. For LRH.
0: Now, when you say the messenger orders, are you talking about the special CMO issues?
1: Yeah, yeah all the CMO like issues. Like the CMO TRs and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, and that's, they were funny. Doing, so, that's but, funny. So That's funny. She
0: wrote all of them?
1: she wrote the majority of them her and another watch messengers and they were for him as signed by him right so she did all the groundwork and he said yep and written by founder lrh because it says lrh founder on it like he wrote it like he's the guy in the room that's typing more i i remember hearing and telling people all my life was like do you know how much stuff LRH wrote? It would fill this entire house. You know, it would fill like hundreds of filing cabinets, legal size filing cabinets, not just the two-drawer, a four-drawer and hundreds of them. And then you start to piece this stuff together. It was like, wait a minute, written four, written... Yeah. And so to me, and then later going, you know, being out and going through what I went through and then kind of coming back into this fold... I started piecing, you know, a lot of things with Scientology to put it in perspective, you really need to take time and dates seriously, because it means a lot in the evolution of Scientology yes, and how it, it was, yep. um, even, even on how a lot of his policies were written. The, the, the sign of the times and the days of like, how could LRH call black people Negroes and da-da-da, and it's like, well, that's what they did in the 50s and 40s. And that, that doesn't make it okay, and I'm absolutely against that, and I am pro-humanity. Um, I believe people are all the same color. I don't think skin matters at all. But it mattered back then. Mm -hmm. It was important back then. And that's where a lot of these things can be taken. We're taking it in 2019 text. And it was written in 2050 text, you know, and you got to take that into account. So with that in mind, the whole evolution of Scientology and the Sea Org really takes on a different perspective. And then you take on these, these personalities that were there. For a good example is in the 80s, David Mayo was the antichrist. Right. And you're like, oh my, I mean, as a young messenger, I was like, oh my God, anything you read about, but then you'd read these advices that are like, it almost was like it was LRH's best friend.
0: Exactly. Because he was. Right. Until the day he wasn't.
1: Exactly. And that's, right. but that's important. And the only yep. way you can really start to decipher that stuff is when you start putting it into date order. Yep. I remember reading it and I'd be like, wait a minute, isn't this the evil guy that every in the Est and oh my God, and he created this and he did that. And then I'm like, they look like their best buds from this order. and that's where, like, with flag, it had a lot of rich history from the Sea Org because of all the flag orders and the oods that were there, the orders of the day.
2: Yep. Uh,
1: and those told a different story than what he wanted presented in the 70s and when they did policy and they started yep. writing all this policies you talked about. Right. So that has to be applied throughout Scientology, even with CST, even with the CMO, even with all that stuff. When they did the, um, the whole command restructures – Mm -hmm. You know, like when they did the when they did Flag Command Bureau and Flag Bureau and and then nobody in the Sea Org knew about the frickin Snow White Project or what happened to Mary. You didn't know about that unless you were not in Scientology, then you might have known about it. But if you were in, oh, you didn't know anything about that crap. It was all kept completely secret. So dates are huge. And so I did a lot of digging into the advices because it started it started to not make sense to me um there's my wife (laughs) it started to um really it made me wonder whether it was written by him or written for him or written on his behalf and at the time you know i think it's kind of a a a mixture of of all three because i don't think he was in in the in the mid 80s is when, I think the first, I think a lot of the advice were written in like 82, 83. And then the LRH first project was like 84, 85. And so when you look back at his actual history, he wasn't in any position. For like Steve Fife, who rests his soul, um, was around him at the time. He was in, LRH was in some bad shape. He was like fighting, body thetans and demons and having all this problems. So why, how would he have this wherewithal to start this project to other than let's take things we do know. I want to stamp my name in history for all mankind.
0: Exactly. Well, I, yeah. I believe because of the fact that that was L Ron Hubbard's longest term life long goal. Mm hmm going all the way back to the Helen letter and, and whatever other journal entries he might have made as a, as a kid or young man, um, this business of stamping his name into history was not a small thing. This was a life goal L. Ron Hubbard had. Right. So I, I think for that reason alone, I, I, I'm sure some of those advices have to be L. Ron Hubbard's own, own words.
1: I think the spirit of them, mm-hmm. but the letter of them, I don't think so okay um, and and the reason why is it's like it's like so you take David Miscavige who everybody's like oh well he's a he's a tyrant and he's this and he's doing his own thing no he really thinks he's doing the work of LRH he really thinks he's doing it I, I honestly I, I cannot not think that I think okay. he realizes that I mean even the the stuff I heard about Pat broker and him going to Vegas and spending money and and then still bringing some of it to the old man and stuff that was rampant in Scientology. That was always rampant. People were still going to be humans, but they're still kind of embracing the spirit. I'm still doing the, the what is going to save the planet, and they believe so, that. So you long think enough.
0: these two ideas can exist concurrently?
1: I do, absolutely. Okay. I don't think. I think when you're in a position, it's like Simon Bolivar, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like what an exec once on his lines. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in a position of power, what do you have to do to keep that position of power? And that's part of like it almost anything's justified to keep that position of power. So, purpose is senior, right? Mm-hmm. So, if purpose is senior, as long as you keep that purpose and you think everything you're doing is on purpose or will eventually end up with that outcome you can justify doing, any, what does Simon Boulevard say? You can kill people, you can lie, you can, I mean, right oh, yeah? there, and then you take in the data series who has all the, like the data series is thick in the art of war. And you, if you read the art of war and then you apply Simon Boulevard to that, well, there's nothing that's out of bounds. You can, you can right. almost justify anything and well, still be- Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's very Machiavellian
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well put. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh. Um, you know, assassination, taking out your enemies, nobody cares. That's, that's, that's exactly the
1: government. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I it's mean,
0: it, we know for a fact, Scientologists don't give a shit what wogs have to say. So, yeah. you know, or wog laws or wog this or wog that. And I know that this is a derogatory term. I know I'm using a very, derogatory term right now this is the word scientologists use that's why i'm using it i'm not throwing this word around because i enjoy you know or i'm trying to denigrate whole classes of people that's what scientologists do and that's what we used to do when we were in
2: scientology
1: well i think it's it's twisted it's not like it seems like this arrogant like well it is kind of like we're better than you but it's like we're doing it for your own good that's right because you don't and that's the that's the nuance that gets missed it's not this arrogant oh the wogs and the wogs it's like you guys are unenlightened but we aren't so we're helping you and even though you don't know you need help we do Right. And we're gonna help you anyways, whether you like it or not. And exactly. we can do it's, anything to do that. And there's nothing off the table because what's at stake? Man's salvation. That's
0: right. World. That's right. It's very um it's it's almost uh, it's almost parental in approach.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? hmm It's that
0: kind of attitude, you know. Clearly we know more than you guys and you guys are just a bunch of deceived boobs and so we're going to lift you up with us and if you're going to fight us we're going to knock you out of the way you know right
1: well we'll we'll get you next lifetime yeah and that's really what it is and and you know the other thing about that is um i've always i I came to a kind of a, a conclusion um, not too long back, but like everybody talks about operating phaetons and, and this and that and like why people get, you know, Scientology is a very selfish religion. Mm-hmm. It's very I, 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 me, 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 me. When you're public, it's all about the I and the me. Yep. And what can I get? Where can I go? Where am I on the bridge? What is your case level? You know, that kind of thing. If you really want to know what an operating phaeton is to Scientology, look at any Sea Org member. Because mm-hmm. when you get off the EPF or the Estates Project Force and you've done your staff statuses, your first first, stable datums that get repeated to you over and over is no case on post, no human emotion reaction and make it go right.
0: That's right. And if you and want those to know are, it, And those are OT, that's what it means to be OT.
1: Right. And that's and that's the it's like it's almost it's like everything it's like dianetics with the volcano, on the front. You're stimulating like if it was that important you wouldn't intentionally re-stimulate people. But it's kind of a joke, and it's as much as the as the Sea Org and Scientologists look at Wogs that way. L. R. H. looked at everybody who's in the Sea Org and Scientology that way. Yep. It's like, oh, I'm dangling this carrot in front of you. And actually, all these guys are already what I already said. Yeah, exactly. And it's exactly. like, it's just, it's that mind... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's get Let's get back to Miscavige for a second, because I, I don't know if I want to argue with you about this or not. I'm curious what your position is on this. You d- received direct orders and, and communication from him for
1: years? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, pretty, I mean, you get everything was approved, but yeah, he'd be he would see a weekly report and then comment directly. He had no problem commenting directly. okay. ok,
0: yeah, I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> I have taken up a position that, and I've said this many times that I do not believe that David Miscavige is a true believer in Scientology. At this point. Yeah. I believe that he might have been at one time back in his past. I think that he had. I think he was honest when he said that he thought it had cured his asthma as a kid even though it didn't cure it, it came back, but you know, he, it, it relieved right. it to some degree. I think he honestly pursued becoming an auditor, but his temperament was such that he was not able to really do a very good job of being an auditor. You know, there's that that story about him slapping right. one of his PC yep.
1: in St. Helena. Um, yeah. He
0: rose in the ranks of Scientology directly under L. Ron Hubbard. He observed how L. Ron Hubbard treated people. He mimicked that behavior, the very worst of that behavior most of the time. Right. Um, And I think that he thought that Scientology tech worked until he saw behind the curtain. I think it was somewhere around the time that OT8 happened. This is purely subjective on my part, just my opinion. But I think that he saw the debacle that was OT8 and the whole issue with the LRH saying he was the Antichrist and all that. And I think he went, whoa, something's really wrong here. Now, also, of course, David Miscavige never made it to OT8 right going through seven so what the hell is he reading that material for in the first place he knew he shouldn't have been doing that but he did it anyway so that's where i think he started getting the idea that it wasn't really all what it was cracked up to be i mean how could you watch l ron hubbard die the way that he did and think that l ron hubbard was the savior of mankind right
1: well i guess i think the difference here that i'm picking up on is what do you really think it true believer in this is i think
0: it's somebody who really believes in the tech the technology is the only technology that will rehabilitate thetans and create powerful states of existence called operating thetan states right that's what i think is a true believer i think it's somebody who looks at that bridge to Mm -hmm. total freedom and says I want to do those services because I want those abilities. And if I do those services and I do them in this order, I will get what L. Ron Hubbard is promising me I will get. That's what I think a true believer is. And I don't think David Miscavige is that.
1: And and with that definition, I agree. Um, Except for I don't think that's what a true believer is. Well, yeah, tell me what you think. I think... um, I kind of liken it to like a medicine man who like the placebo effect um, a little bit of like a world without crime and a world without, you know, hate and war. It doesn't mean everybody has to be OT. It doesn't mean, I mean, it kind of does when you're trying to sell them that and that's the elixir of like, you know, going, what is the Rolling Stones going to the, the, shelter of his mother's little helper or like it it's that whole like this elixir is going to help you feel better and be better like we're all connected as humans and i think there's it's i'm selling you this piece of thing that's going to make you be a better human and yeah i might promise you stuff and i think a lot of like lrh and to a degree david miscavige got caught up I don't. Not David. I think L. R. H. Got caught up in the fact because he believed his own. So he drank his own tonic.
0: Very much
2: so.
1: Absolutely till the end, and yes. and drank it all. Yes. And I think if you take it as like, I think I think I look at it as me. If I would have stayed in, my true belief of it is to make the world a better place, and that doesn't mean everybody has to. It never correlated that everybody had to be OTA to make it a better place. That's just. I remember looking down on the public at flag as like, Oh yeah, you guys are doing something for yourself, but what are you doing for mankind? Mm-hmm. So and if that's you a look pretty at,
0: standard C org attitude towards the public for the most part, Right. I had but a very the, similar uh, attitude too.
1: Right. Right. And I think it's, if you look at, if you kind of embrace that idea of it, it's like, um, you're trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And what are you willing to, it's like boots in the sky, right? Isn't that mm-hmm. the policy? Um, it's a, it was a lecture. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. It was a lecture.
0: It was from um, the um, Philadelphia doctorate course.
1: Which the, exactly. I mean, there was some interesting, I think when you take those, like, so I guess it's what your emphasis is. If it's all tech, see, I was never a tech person. I was okay. always, okay. always an administrative person. Right. Always. Right. I was um, OEC volume one, but I, you know, I, that's what I did. When I studied, I studied green on white policy. Right. And I think that's what I, when I think of a true believer, that's what I think he is in that. Not that the tech is just something there to make money. The the tech is there to self-indulge people for their dangle that carrot in order to get them to give money to the organization which purpose is to make the world a better place and we have the tools and the technology to do that technology just isn't red on white although any tech person will tell you different green on white was the administrative tech and the the eval tech and there's it was almost like a like a 1984 kind of thing where you would eventually run the world, right? And it, ethics huh. and morals and and I think in that context, I I absolutely believe he's a true believer that he thinks that if he could run the entire planet and control it, that there wouldn't be crime. Well, how much crime is on? I mean, although there's pedophiles and I mean a lot more stuff than I knew about. That's for sure. But um, you're going to get that, you know, in any form a society unfortunately and that's what those people are trying to eradicate they think that you can with that technology eradicate those behaviors and i think that's that's, kind
0: of that's kind of my point right is i'm really glad this is a really good demonstration here actually of defining our terms so i'm really glad that we that you said all that um because hubbard was extremely crystal clear. And I I don't know if you ever saw this or not about the fact that the tech is, the red on white is a hundred times more valuable and important than the policy. (laughs) Exactly. And the policy is a hundred times more important, he said, than the Sea Org tech the FOs and the Missionaire tech and all that. He right. said they're all important. You can't pull this off without all of them. The Sea Org, mm-hmm. missions, L. Ron Hubbard policies for the organizations, and then at the top, the technology, the methods right. and techniques that are applied to individuals in order to improve them spiritually and move them into higher states of, of awareness and ability. Right. I think my, my, the way I have framed this for years now is that david miscavige might be using the organization or running the organization for his own personal aggrandizement certainly for sure maybe there's some strange idea in the back back deep recesses you know recesses of his amygdala that he has making the world a better place but i think that's a delusional point of view from his part
1: Absolutely. But maybe he
0: really does believe that. I'll grant you that. He might be crazy enough and megalomania enough to think that that's what he's actually doing. Right. But I don't think in any part of this picture that he thinks that L. Ron Hubbard's technology is the the roadmap to, to making the world that better place. I think he has adopted a point of view that he knows best
1: what right. to do. Oh, absolutely and, and I think yeah I agree yeah. I, I think um and that's a vehicle to get people in the fold to control them yes and I think that's exactly what he does think is that this is yes. like it's it's like a medicine man it's like I'm selling you this elixir that I just made with water and a little sugar in the background right and I'm once I get you in though it won't matter because then you're all gonna be Subject to this policy and these ethics and this and then the world will be a better place and that's the convoluted and you know Some people are at the top and some people are at the bottom and that's just life and he's at the top Yeah, and and it's not, you know, and it's it's unfortunately the way the organization was run. It's always been like that Yes, and even with so with LRH he did it as almost like a service facsimile, right? He wasn't accepted in major medicine. He wasn't accepted into psychology or psychiatry at the time. And it pissed them off because he thought he had something. And they're like, you're just basically a snake oil salesman. None of your shit even works. And he's like, well, I'll show you yep. what a snake oil salesman is. Dabble a little Satanism and OTC in there. And like, you know, I mean, That's where, like, I'm going to go do Aleister Crowley, and I'm going to go lie to – like, look how he got it the first time. He fooled a guy, borrowed money with no intention of paying him back. Like, what a douchebag. But you know what? That's what a lot of people do. A lot of people seek to deceive because they think they have a higher purpose because they think, well, it doesn't matter because that's just the thing. And once that's done, you'll see. And it that's won't a matter. really.
0: That's a. You're making good points here. This is. This is good. I'm. I'm glad we're talking about this because this is helping to. Uh, I think it know, just it, puts
1: it frames him into perspective. I mean, like, yeah. So to to speak of him is something I don't know. I I don't know that anybody will like my point of view on David Miscavige, the man, because he's also a second gen. That's he true. didn't. He was raised in Scientology by somebody yes who who says he was an aggressive, mean, maybe abusive person, mm-hmm. but then also says that, oh, he was always a bad guy. Well, that goes against Scientology you're born basically good, you're made bad, and most humans aren't born basically i don't think there's like Satan isn't born, and just as from a baby he's out stabbing other babies or taking their suckies, or you know I mean, I think you have to have those influences in order to be a truly narcissistic and controlling person so i'll leave that alone yeah we could that, that's a whole other
0: thing that i we won't get into right now but but
1: but when it but comes it, out it's it's the same as marty like marty got in as a first gen to solve his own problems and then felt the power and was let behind the curtain and now there's somebody who doesn't necessarily have that Accountability or has the accountability. It doesn't have the excuse that maybe like a David Miscavige does of Really wanting to make the world a better place. Marty got in for his own selfish personal reasons, right? David Miscavige got in for other reasons and and I liken it to me getting in at a young age similar to a lot of other kids that got in at the same age and what I felt and what my higher purpose was. Now, maybe I'm not as evil and awful as him, but I, when you believe in something there's, you're willing to do a lot. Oh yeah. And then when, when you get to a position to where you make the rules what what is that even inside let's make sure that by the time they figure it out we're making the rules right and we're the ones inside, right that's, so, a, that,
0: that's right out of l ron Hubbard's work that's right
1: right exactly so there's the true believer like Interesting. Yeah, tech tech Interesting. is senior to policy, but tech wouldn't be anywhere without policy
0: well and yeah any, fair enough but but again i think I, I think that uh you know, the policy only exists. Al Ron Hubbard said this over and over again, right?
1: right? It only the exists to, only exists the tech, to get right? the tech applied. Mm-hmm.
0: So, without the, the policy, the there tech, for what? The policy's meaningless.
1: But the tech's there for what? To, well, rope to improve you in. conditions. But what is it really there for? It's well, there to well, rope you hard, in. It's,
0: it's about the money. Yeah.
1: Well, and dangle. And why would you give all this money away?
0: Yeah, because you're trying to get to higher states of awareness in the belly. Right, yeah, it's all about that t- yeah.
1: it's all about dangling that carrot, and selling That's that right. elixir, That's and right. being like, "Oh, right, there are addictive qualities in this elixir, and you're gonna want to come back for more." And oh, I have it. Oh, but so. the price went up. Oh, and the pri- and you need this to go with your elixir, and it's like. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so is it like it? It is a marriage. You have to have one. Won't exist without the other, and that's. I think that's where in LRH's evolution he realized that you can't go when. Imagine being in there when you had the first clear. And they get her on stage and they're like, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? What's on page 50? And he's just like, oh, shit. All right. I
0: I mean, I'll argue with you a little bit on that because I will say that the tech could exist without any of the policy at all. And it could still be applied on a one-on-one basis. And you could have people working with it and doing things. Like it came first. Before there was any policy, there was tech.
1: You mean the plagiarized part of it? It was well, that Dianetics right. Right? <laughs>
0: right which was plagiarism and <laughs> right, <strategic laughs> exactly. hypnotism right. into one right with Dianetics modern science mental health um so we're talking about this stuff like I, I'm 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 making certain you know for the purposes of this little discussion we're having right now, we're ignoring the fact that it's all bullshit and none of it works anyway. <laughs>
1: okay, gotcha, right.
0: We're talking about it in a context in a context that, well, let's say this stuff, you know, actually works or does something right. productive. Within that context, right, I, I, I think all the points you made about David Miscavige's motivations are 100% correct. I agree with you about everything on that. Um, stepping back to this thing about tech and policy and that sort of thing, I just have to say, all of Scientology's organizations could disappear tomorrow. The Sea Org mm. could collapse tomorrow, and 50 years from now, somebody could start the whole thing up again if all they had was the books.
1: Sure, and that's right? exactly starting why with CS the text. They would not start
0: with the policy.
1: Oh, Nobody would not. start
0: with policy and go, oh, this is a really good idea. I think we should do this. They would start with Dianetics. So they would start right. with fundamentals of thought or some piece of tech. And they'd start using it on another person and have that person use it on them. And from that would come, oh, how do we organize this? And who knows? Maybe they find policy and maybe they don't.
1: Right. But, well, you know, know it's funny because like, it, it, I agree with that because yeah. – um I remember original book one auditing, which is Dynex auditing yep. being explained to me by my uncle when I was, God, eight years old, probably. Um, and he's like, it's like two people having a really good conversation with each other. And one of them realizing something they never knew about themselves. Wouldn't you want to do that?
0: Of exactly. course you would. It is that easy I to mean, sell it. Yeah.
1: And then it's like, well, yeah, of course I'd want to realize something. And something that maybe was troubling you. And then you realize that now it doesn't trouble you. And it's just sitting down and talking, you know, and it's, that's the snake oil salesman. That's yep. like, you know, folks, we got trouble. We got trouble right here in river city. <laughs> and it's, that's, you know, and without a good salesman and without a good, I, I think it, you're right. It does one kind of begets the other, but the, the tech has to be there first. Yep. But the policy, that's the thing is like, when I came in, like I, like I said, freely, I was an admin guy. And mm-hmm. I didn't do that's the test. Right. That's right. When no, I got I there, it. I had I totally self-analysis. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's where that's where David Miscavige is coming from. Right. I guarantee you, his like, look at—he's not up to, He's not there auditing his BTS and like obsessing on it and doing whatever until he died. That's right. L.H. was really trying to make his snake oil into something real, like a fountain of youth and the finding the Holy Grail and like those kind of like, and that goes back in history. People have always been searching for that. And right. he tapped into that and used a little hypnotism and a little f- smoke and mirrors to make it. Ooh, I want some of this.
2: Exactly. But
1: David Miscavige didn't grow up that way. He failed as an auditor. Yep. He obviously showed that that tech didn't really. But boy, you get into that admin, and he was a messenger, and he was. He did that. He went down the same kind of road I went down, and I can see that fanaticism blinding you about everything like look i got this tool here and all i got to do is keep applying this to make this tool go and i can have whatever i want and then now wait a minute maybe i'm the guy and i'll i'm sure he's sat there probably trying to figure out okay what would be next or what would i but he doesn't believe in that part of it he believes in the organization and the thing to keep it alive and right. those people are just cattle for him they're just a the cattle going through a fring and you i'm taking and branding your ass and there you go
2: exactly
1: to that degree that's a true believer to me you know that that, fair
0: enough and i and i will say i will hold my position that he's not a true believer but i will i will be more clear in saying he's not a true believer in the tech
1: absolutely no i agree okay good
0: good and that was good that was good conversation thank you for that yeah um let's wrap up yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'm curious about some about what people are going to think about this. Folks, leave your questions and comments on this based on what we've been talking about. We threw a lot of Scientologies around, just kind of, you know, we try to do our best to explain it along the way. But if you have questions, go ahead and leave them in the comments. Um, and we might end up, you know, if you have some good ones out there, we might end up doing some more uh, follow-up on this and, and answer some more. Dylan, thank you very much for taking the time to do this and sharing your story. I really do appreciate it.
1: Heck yeah. No, Chris, I, I, I'm glad that we um, are able, I know we didn't talk on any of the X stuff and I think that's probably good. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, this is what's needed. Like, honestly, to me, like all the little spats and Sonny and Aaron and blah, blah, blah. And like, well, but it's the same, you know, like we have to be better people. And I, and, you know, as much as it sounds cliche for any Scientologist, but communication is kind of a universal solvent. <laughs> and it, you know, it. it um, if you're willing to to talk about stuff, you can resolve stuff. And and if you just like this conversation is over and I'm blocking you and you know it's it's really I get people have to do that, but at the same time, man, you know, we're all we have a lot of the time. You know, so it, it's important. And I, I I've gone back and forth and i respect and like you as a person so um i'm i didn't want to not pay homage to that i i you know i i think it's important so awesome uh, well
0: i i agree with you and it's always bothered me when i have had to um block or disconnect from somebody in the ex community for whatever reason um sometimes justified maybe sometimes not um and I hope that maybe eventually we can repair or restore those relationships.
1: And I think that's it. The door is never completely shut. Yeah. Like you always leave it open a crack and then there's always room to come back. Because You know, it's a, you can't walk. It's hard to empathy, compassion, reciprocity. Those are things you, I didn't learn. I, I wasn't raised with that. Right. And this, those are things that I try to, to bond myself to now. Right. I really try. And and it's hard. It's not, it's not, it's a learned ability and I didn't learn it. <laughs> like it, it's, it's not something innate. It's not something that you're just born with. It's something I'm learning with my kids. Like you got to teach them right and wrong. You got to teach them to put out the fire and you got to teach them to, to make good decisions and be the bigger person or take the higher road. And that's hard, man.
2: Yep. And, and when, you
1: didn't, when you don't get those tools and you're in this totalitarian society or this, not society, group, which we came from, they're not only not encouraged, they're disabused from you. And if, if you exercise that, you get kicked out. And if you don't, you you end up as the boss. You know. <laughs> so it, I, I aspire to be a better person than all those people.
0: You have a wealth of information, Dylan, and I'm sure people are going to want to pick your brain.
1: Yeah, no worries. I'm here. I'm, I'm here to... Make the world a better place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Me
0: too. (laughs) All right, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, again, folks, questions, comments, feedback in the comments section below. Uh, If you like this channel and what I'm doing, consider supporting me on Patreon. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.